Welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. Thank you for joining another episode of What the HR. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by Perrin Fark. Perrin is an author, an entrepreneur, a keynote speaker, and a diversity expert who empowers leaders to leverage diversity as their competitive advantage. Perrin was nominated in the top 50 most influential UK tech women, and Perrin continues to be recognized for her contributions. She drove the strategy at companies such as Facebook and is on a mission to make the workplace more inclusive and diverse. In today's interview with Perrin, we really cover some incredibly important topics related to DEI, topics that I'm personally, and I know Mike is as well, very passionate about. We talk about what exactly is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why is bundling the three of those really important topics topics together important and make DEI initiatives within an organization more effective. We talk about the benefits of DEI, how HR professionals and business leaders can prioritize their time when it comes to DEI efforts, especially knowing that some organizations don't have large budgets or you know large um, HR teams or individuals that are specifically designated to DEI. But we also talk about organizations that are larger with bigger budgets and how um, they can really leverage their size and scale from a DEI perspective. We talk about um, ROI and how to understand whether or not your DEI efforts have been effective. How to keep momentum once you have launched your your DEI efforts and you have a solid foundation? How do you keep the momentum going and not make DEI just a check the box activity? And then we talk really about the importance of mentorship and and sponsorship relationships as it pertains to DEI. So as you can hear, we have covered a lot of great topics in this. Um, episode. Perrin is wonderful. You're really going to enjoy her passion and enthusiasm and expertise around this topic. As always, if you're loving the episodes, if you enjoy Perrin as a guest, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss an episode. And as always, we hope that you enjoy. Happy listening. Perrine, thank you so much for joining the What the HR podcast. We're super excited to have you here today and also to discuss this really important and uh, important topic and a topic that I'm personally very passionate about, and I know you are as well. So before we jump in and get through our interview questions, um, I know that we gave a bio of you at the beginning of the podcast episode, but would love for you to have an opportunity to share with our listeners a little bit more about you and even how you specifically got into this DEI work, if you will. Yeah, of course. And first of all, thank you so much for having me today. I'm super excited to be on your podcast because I've been following your podcast for a while and I, I know you produce lots of great content. So thank you for having me today. Um, yeah, sure. I guess. Uh, so I always like to start by saying that I was born and bred in France and then I lived in Italy for a few years and now I'm currently living in the UK. So I'm very multi-cultural uh, myself, I guess. Um, I, I currently live in, in the UK, in London. My husband is Italian. Our kids speak three languages every day. So it's a very multicultural family to be the French and English and Italian in the house all the time. So it's very, it's fun. But uh, yes, of course, so I, I essentially I started studying law when I was at university in France. I was very interested in the topic of social justice and social fairness back then. But then I decided I did not want to become a lawyer. And so I started uh, studying marketing. And so I started working in uh, as a marketing executive in the tech technology space for a lot of uh, U.S. technology vendors or U.S. software vendors um, for about 13 years here in London. Um, and as of often, I was the only woman in the room, especially when it came to sort of leadership positions. As I grew in my career, I was often the only woman in a very male-dominated environment. Um, and then I had situations where 
sometimes I was I was you know a late me a late evening meeting with with my colleagues and I had to go back home to pick up the kids from school and pick up the kids from nursery uh, but my uh, peers didn't have that pressure because they had a, a wife at home who would either not work or maybe have a part-time job um, so it was very very hard to to have that career in technology while struggling you know the demands of being a working mom so that made me think surely there must be a better way to work a, a way that people are empowered to work around their own hours have flexibility are supported uh, and that's what really led me to do what I do today so today I'm, a, I'm an author I'm a keynote speaker and really I help organizations really transform their workplace into a more inclusive place so that's a very very short introduction about myself but hopefully that gives you a bit of background about who I am, where I come from and uh, what I stand for. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I know that you have a book out there too, that will definitely, you know, will probably get weaved into some of our discussion today. And if it doesn't get weaved in as much as we hope it will, we'll definitely want you to share with our listeners about the book, where they can find it and maybe um, who that book is for specifically. Uh, so before we do that, I never want to assume that our listeners clearly understand the definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Specifically, equity, I feel like it, the the E and the D, E, and I is the one that I think kind of trips people up the most. So if you could kick us off with your definition of D, E, and I, and maybe even why it's so important that it's not just D and I, or just D or just I, or just E, like why all three of those really need to be bundled together in order to be um, an effective organization with that, with those three things in focus. Yeah. It's such a great question, Jess, because uh, according to research, most people are too scared to talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. There is a recent study by uh, Right Track Learning uh, that uh, from 2021, actually very recent, that revealed that 55% of people are too scared to talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace for fear of saying the wrong thing. So you're right. It's a concept that's often misunderstood and that leads to a lack of discussion, which obviously is counterproductive. So, you know, what is the meaning of diversity in the workplace? Uh, as you said, you know, diversity different from equity, different from inclusion. Um, so diversity in the workplace refers to obviously employing a diverse team of people that is reflect, reflective of the, of the society in which we live and operate. And so um, according to, to, to McKinsey, diversity in the workplace refers to uh, social categories such as gender and ethnicity. So traditionally, we talked about in the context of the workplace about a gender diverse team or ethnic ethnically diverse team. But as the, as the definition is evolving and constantly evolving, uh, nowadays we include other, other areas such as, uh, for example, uh, age, for example, or gender reassignment, uh, sexual orientation, or being married or in civil partnerships, or even things like being pregnant on maternity leave, even the law, there's um, in the United Kingdom where I'm, I'm from right now, there is the Equality Act 2010 that has uh, really essentially protected uh, employees to be discriminated against anything based on gender, gender reassignment, being married, etc. So with that, the definition of diversity in the workplace has evolved from just gender diversity and ethnic diversity to all the areas such as disability, race, a nationality, etc., which is a good thing because nowadays the definition is more uh, is is broader. And then when it comes to inclusion, what does inclusion mean? Um, well, the, I guess one of the best ways to define it is that um, is really the achievement of a work environment in which all individuals are treated fairly and respectfully, and also have equal access to opportunities and resources, and they can contribute fully to the organization. So it's harder to measure typically than diversity, uh, but uh, there are some uh, specific areas we can look at as an employer, as a HR professional to measure. So for example, measuring fair treatment, uh, integrating differences, uh, integra- integrating everybody in the decision-making process, uh, psychological safety, trust, belonging, for example. So when employers send a survey, an employee survey, they can get a sense of inclusion when they ask employees to answer how they feel about each of these elements. And then finally, you talked about equity, which obviously is another key concept. 
So equity is the idea of trying to uh, level the playing field for everyone, because we know that, for example, uh, let's say uh, a, a gay black woman might not have the same uh, access to resources than, let's say, a straight white man, for example. Um, and so it's the idea that not everybody starts from a you know same level playing field, and so therefore organizations need to help certain groups uh, to overcome certain obstacles. Uh, and often that's misunderstood because that's where sometimes it creates some divisions because it's misunderstood and some groups are feeling excluded and we don't want the groups to feel excluded. So what that I always like to talk about uh, interse intersectionality. So for example, it, you know, there could be a white man, but maybe that white man comes, maybe he's LGBT plus, for example, or maybe he's older, right? And feels a bit more excluded from the younger folks. So the same person might on certain areas be more included but also other areas because of their age or sexual orientation be excluded. So every individual, every employee to some level uh, sort of, you know, is, uh, I guess, uh, touched by that intersectionality aspect, right? They could be uh, at the same time uh, part of a, a group that has more privileges and also a group that has less privileges. So uh, that's sort of the nutshell, the definition about diversity and inclusion and equity in the workplace. Yeah, those were great examples. And I'm really glad that you spent a little bit more time on the equity side and gave the, that specific example that you did. Because in my experience, people get tripped up with equity, thinking equity is all about compensation and making sure that people are fairly compensated. And certainly compensation is an important piece of equity, but it's really just one small slice of the pie. And, um, you know, meeting people where they need to be met, knowing that people come from different socioeconomic backgrounds or have had different privileges, et cetera, et cetera, is, is really what kind of summarizes equity. And I always like, when I'm trying to describe this to my leaders, I always say, if an organization does diversity and inclusion really well, they'll automatically do equity really well because mm -hmm. equity is kind of the result of diversity and inclusion done well, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Absolutely. And I, you know, I always love to share stories because I think stories are, are powerful. And I, I, I love this story in particular. Um, recently, I was uh, I was hosting a workshop around diversity and inclusion for a group of leaders for a technology organization based in the UK, although they have a uh, presence in the US. Um, they're a fintech uh, startup based in the UK, but also in the US. So I was, I was hosting this workshop. We were talking about concepts of diversity and inclusion. We were talking about the idea of privilege and intersectionality. And to my surprise, to everybody's surprise in the group, the CEO of the organization, who is a, a man, pretty young, I guess, maybe in his mid-40s, uh, who is from an uh, Asian, Asian background, he actually revealed that he uh, felt sometimes uh, excluded when, when he was younger because actually he looks young. He looks very young, although now he's in his mid-40s. And he felt often that he heard some banter or comments about he looked too young to be a CEO or he was too young to be a leader or a business leader. And he, you know, he felt a bit excluded from that. And, and I think that it was a very personal story that he shared. And I think you have to be quite brave to share that in front of your peers and your you know, chief operation officer and, etc because it was showing some uh, vulnerability but it's an example of uh, you know equity because yes you know he's a man and yes he's the CEO of a fintech startup but he's also Asian and he's also quite young I guess so uh, the idea that um, you know he although you know he's a man he, he might have suffered some obstacles due to his young age maybe or you know other factors so so absolutely the idea of equity I think is the idea that certain groups uh, have more obstacles than others to overcome. Um, so yeah, very interesting topic and concept. Mm -hmm. So then the next big topic, when we talk about DE&I, and we also have to keep in mind, you know, that our listenership for this podcast is a combination of an HR island of one in a really small organization with small budgets to really large global organizations with lots of resources and money. And so when we're interviewing folks like you, we always try to wear that hat so that individuals walking away from this episode, no matter whether they're on the island of one or whether they're in the large global organization with lots of resources, can walk away feeling like they can put something into action or they can surface something up to their direct leader, or to their CEO. 
to help support the business. So one of the big questions that always comes up in regards to DEI is, well, where do I start? You know, what if I don't have much of a budget or a lot of resources? Or what if I do have a, a lot of resources and a budget? But when we need to take action quickly and show the organization that this is a topic we're really passionate about and we want to be serious about it, where do we get the most ROI? on some of our initial efforts. So where do we get started essentially? Yeah, and thanks for asking this, Jess, because it's such a great question, which I get quite often actually. I do, it's probably one of the top five questions I get, so it's such a great question. And you're right, one of the main obstacles to incorporate diversity and inclusion in the workplace is not knowing how to start or where to start. And there are many qualified HR professionals out there or business leaders who would like to have a solid diversity and inclusion strategy. However, they simply don't know where to start or how to begin the conversation. So in my experience, there are a couple of sort of strategies that people, professionals can use to get started. So the first one is always, I'd say, to research, prepare and plan in advance. Um, because senior leaders usually focus on numbers, you know, so having some statistics about the business impact of a diverse and inclusive workforce will really help you, HR professional, to articulate the business case, the business need to a senior audience. So if your leadership has any, you know, has not prioritized diversity and inclusion, you can help them by sharing, for example, some resources or examples of companies that are successful with it. So, for example, Glassdoor recently shared a list of 12 companies that are ramping up their diversity and inclusion efforts. Uh, in there, there were lots of actually General Motors was mentioned, uh, Salesforce as well, um, Asana. So sharing these kinds of success stories can really help uh, you to kickstart the conversation. Uh, the second strategy I would share to really start the conversation around diversity and inclusion is to set the scene and facilitate. Uh, as you, HR professional, begin the conversation on, on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, your employees should be aware ahead of time that you know, there will be a discussion around diversity and inclusion. So if you give everyone plenty of time and context, that will allow them to prepare questions or concerns they would like to discuss. Also, if you're very clear about the goal of the conversation and you remind that everyone in your organization is working towards true equality, equity, and inclusion, that's going to help. So really establishing discussion guidelines can really help you as well. A third strategy I would share as well is to ask questions and listen more than you speak. I know it can be quite difficult, but asking questions on behalf of the group or urging your audience to ask questions is really key. You want to give everyone a chance to share their experience uh, or, you know, share their questions with everyone else. So you can open up the discussion with something like, as a company, what are we doing to focus our efforts on building a diverse and inclusive workplace? And just listen, take notes and listen more than you speak is really key. And I guess the last but not least uh, strategy I would share to, to, to start the conversation on diversity and inclusion is to really define what diversity and inclusion means to your organization. We just started this podcast episode by talking about the very definition. And as we can see, it's, a very, it's, it's quite a complex definition. It doesn't exactly roll out of the tongue, even the word diversity, equity, and inclusion. So asking people to give their definition of for each term will help spark, spark the conversation. The goal is to teach people that diversity and inclusion is a concept that goes beyond just race and gender, for example. We talked about age and sexual orientation and disability, et cetera. And so doing some digging to discover why some people might struggle to answer what diversity and inclusion means could help as well. So those are sort of key four key strategies I would share with any HR professional who would like to start. So really, um, you know, researching and preparing, number one, two, you know, set the scene and facilitate, three, ask questions and listen, and four, define what diversity and inclusion means to your organization. So Jess had asked about ROI, and uh, my question is around, I understand why somebody who's trying to push an initiative to a CEO or a board is, is going to start with ROI, because that's what business leaders are, are going to care about. But do you think that that's actually hurting the E&I efforts in, in some way? Because there are certain things that you, you probably need to do as a person, as a company, that doesn't have like an immediate ROI or it's very hard to kind of calculate the ROI. Yeah. So I, I'm just curious on your opinion on that. And uh, again, I understand it, but is there other avenues that, that people can take to get these DE&I initiatives across the board 
that doesn't come down to dollars and cents because that just that puts people into a bucket that I don't know it. I'm not sure that it's the right approach sometimes. Yeah, you know, it's again, it's a great question because uh, you can answer it both ways. I personally, so based on my experience working with, at the end of the day, people who have the power and the influence and the authority to change things are uh, those at the top, so CEOs, etc. So we want to make sure we have them on board, fully on board, because otherwise our diversity and inclusion initiative won't go really far, unfortunately. So trying to speak their language, which is often the language of, you know, business language and ROI uh, often helps. Now, if, if you're lucky and your CEO really understands diversity and inclusion anyway by default without need to demonstrating the RI, that's fantastic. You can go ahead and you'll have you know, support, authority, and budget. But if that's not the case, which is often the case, then you need to speak their language, which is ROI. And so, for example, you can talk about the fact that diverse teams are more innovative, creative thinking, for example, which helps for innovation and revenue. Or you can talk about inclusion is good for employee engagement and retention, uh, which is good for, uh, obviously, good for business. So what I found based on my experience working with clients and organizations is that when you can speak the language of your CEO and business leader and articulate the RI, that often helps. uh, Because um, unfortunately, um, naturally, business leaders have a tendency to sort of deprioritize DEI and prioritize other things. So when you speak that language, it helps. On the other hand, um, understanding that diversity and inclusion really helps as well from a brand perspective is from a you know, purpose-driven organization that's going to help acquire customers and acquire great candidates and employees because the millennial generation is the most educated and the most socially conscious generation ever. So people nowadays, consumers, clients, they expect to to spend their money with purpose-driven organizations, organizations that invest in things like corporate social responsibility and diversity and inclusion. Likewise, employees are actively looking to uh, interview only with those organizations organizations that are purpose-driven and uh, fully embrace diversity and inclusion. Uh, you know, we live in a world post-COVID that's, you know, the talent war is, is, is huge. Uh, employees are leaving. Uh, we talk about the big resignation here in the UK because employees do not want to return to an office work. They want to have flexibility. People are leaving. So now more than ever before, organizations need to have a strong uh, employer brand uh, being purpose-driven, which is on one hand, great for ROI, but also just good for you know a great cause. So I think those two concepts go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I, and I think we're... Um... Well, and you answered it perfectly. It's in my mind, sometimes ROI removes authenticity in, in some aspects of, of it. And I think that's some of the things we've seen with companies and how they advertise what they're doing. It just, some of it seems not authentic. And, and so one of my questions around that authenticity piece is when we talk about diversity specifically, is the goal for a company to kind of open up and allow for diversity to happen? Or is it to force diversity in certain areas of the business? And I'm thinking whether that be gender or race, you know, hey, we don't have enough females in this area. So they, they, you know, they force it in there or we don't. Do you know what I'm asking there? How do you create an open culture that allows for diversity versus we're going to force it into a certain area? Yeah. No, it's another great question because, again, I get this question quite a lot, uh, which is a fair question to ask. You know, I always go back to look at where you you live. So look at where your organization is. So for example, I'm in London right now. In London, if we look at the population breakdown, it's about 40% of the London population is uh, from an ethnic minority. So it's a very diverse ethnically population. So if your organization is 100% based in London and 100% of your employees are white, well, there is something somewhere that's not reflective of the society you live in, regardless of which sector you're in, whether you're in technology or engineering or any sector. So looking at where you live, if you live in a very remote uh, rural area and it's a very wide population, then it might be, uh, I guess, not make a lot of sense to say we want 50% of our workforce to be from an ethnic minority just simply because of where you are. So I think it's important to look at the context of where you are, just to get the benchmark first and foremost. And then I think in terms of whether we want to force it or not, it's just I always like to have a bit of a bottom-up approach. So ask employees how they feel, sort of survey your employee to 
hear they you know their voice what do they feel is missing do they feel that something is missing do they feel everything is fine because often as an employer you would get some good qualitative feedback from serving your employees regarding the workforce are they happy with the diversity or not so that will also give you some clues regarding what they feel is missing or not now if you are in an organization that's very sort of conservative and traditional and you know you've got a bit of push back when it comes to diversity. I think you need to have a lot of education and awareness. I think if you force it on people, it might backfire and be counterproductive. So it needs to be part of a you know, slow, long-term education awareness. People really understand it, you know, why it's good, sharing lots of success stories to sort of motivate people. Because if it's just forcing, forcing it is probably not going to work. So there's a lot of education work that needs to happen. But, you know, in my experience, sharing success stories and having some role models in the organization um, can really help change the mindset of the organization, the culture. So it can happen organically if you invest a little bit in education, awareness, role modeling, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have a question, Jeff? Yeah, I do. Well, I just wanted to build upon that. I'm really glad that you brought up listening strategies because I think listening strat- a good listening strategy is so valuable from a DE&I mm-hmm. perspective, but frankly, it's valuable from an engagement, retention, um, a, a branding perspective. And the great thing about listening strategies is they can be done very inexpensively. So for our listeners who are an HR island of one and don't have these large budgets, you know, you can ask your CEO to do a listening strategy to have a, a Teams meeting or whatever technology that you use within your organization and have employees call in and the CEO can ask questions very specific to DEI or other topics that are important to the organization. It can be done through SurveyMonkey very inexpensively, you know, or there are obviously, you know, very robust uh larger, more expensive resources that companies that do have a budget like that can use to really benchmark how are our employees feeling about this topic? How well do they feel like we're doing as a leadership team and an organization on this topic? And where are we faltering? You know, where where do we need to do better as an organization? So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And then the second piece was around metrics and Mike's original question about foreseeing versus it being a little bit more organic. And I unfortunately have been a part of an organization in the past where our our diversity metrics specifically were very metric driven versus goal driven. I think that having really solid long-term, not short-term, but more like long-term goals that the organization is working towards in order to improve the diversity within the organization and supporting leaders and the talent acquisition team and others um, hiring managers that work and live in the locations in which you're hiring people from is really the best way to build in the how, but also really the why that this is, you know, why this is important to the organization. And to the point, Perrine, that you made around um, forcing it and kind of the downfall of taking that route is that even if you were to be successful in meeting those metrics, which in my opinion, likely you're not going to meet them because you, you're putting all of your cards in the wrong you know, in the wrong basket or all of your eggs in the wrong basket is that if you meet the goal, you're likely not going to retain those people because you haven't put any focus on inclusion and equity in the organization. So these individuals are like, okay, I'm here, but I don't really feel like this organization cares about me. And I mm-hmm. still feel like all decisions are made by white males in the organization, mm. for example. Yeah, it, it's it's true. Absolutely. Uh, one of the, I've recently written a blog post around you know the sort of seven most common uh, mistakes or pitfalls when it comes to diversity and inclusion and the one you talk about is uh, I think it was number two in my list or number one, but yeah often when organizations actually manage to finally hire more diverse candidates, be it more female, more people of color, etc., I guess older people, etc., then what happens is fast forward six months, those people leave, they don't stay, so we have a problem. So one of the common pitfalls is a lack of um, uh, retention. We, they don't they focus on uh, diverse hiring, but not retention, right? So it's very important that uh, organizations, employers think about how we're gonna how we're gonna retain those uh, diverse candidates. If, for example, we start hiring more women or more women of color, but it's just one in the team, how do we make sure she is welcome and she feels heard, etc.? 
And so there are lots of things that can be done. So for example, setting up employee resource groups, setting up Slack, Slack channels and forums for uh, employees, specific groups to come together and share struggles or wins or success stories, et cetera, or tips. Um, and maybe inviting uh, panelists or speakers to talk about uh, their experience uh, at other organizations, celebrating culture days, right? So be it uh, different holidays or different uh, celebrating different uh, cultures throughout the year is another way to celebrate differences. So, and obviously sending lots of employee pulse surveys very often and breaking it down per group category. Those are all small things that employers, HR professionals can do to focus more on the inclusion part because you're right, we don't want to uh, start hiring lots of diverse candidates, but then they don't stay, right? So focusing on retention, inclusion is key to, to, to the success of the organization. Is there anything else? Can you expand on it a little bit? So when I think about, we, we talk a lot about talent acquisition when we talk about DEI, and I get it. We got to get those people into the organization. But once they're in, to Jess's point, like how do we keep them? Is there any any other research? I'm thinking back to, I think I remember Apple. It was it was a long time ago now, but I remember they came out and said small groups was this you know big thing in it, and it worked really well because you get to know individual people. The other thing I think of is if if you've ever seen the movie Remember the Titans. Uh, it's a it's a football movie. Denzel Washington's the head coach, and you know back at the time the schools were segregated. Well, they bring them together. So there's the white um, football players, the black football players, and what Denzel Washington does is he matches them together, one each, and they have to come back and they have to give like three facts about that other person. And I bring that up because I've never seen that in a company, and I and you see like buddy programs and mentor. Have you ever seen anything where they do match up people of different backgrounds specifically to try to build up a culture of diversity? Yes, that, that's a, you know, such a great point. Uh, mentorship. And I actually have um, I've recently posted a video on my YouTube channel around reverse mentoring, which reverse mentoring is the idea that uh, actually younger people are coaching older, more seasoned senior executive. Um, on different skills, which is great. Um, so I guess I have worked with some organizations. Typically, they're a bit larger organizations that are a little, bit, a little bit more, I guess, advanced when it comes to their diversity and inclusion programs. Um, so some of them offer those reverse mentoring programs or even mentoring programs, essentially matching people from different backgrounds with a different age, etc. And uh, based on the feedback I've had from some of those organizations, actually, the results are really good because some of those more senior leaders actually learning lots of, for example, uh, cool tech things to do on, on, their, on their laptops and even on their devices, which, you know, they really enjoy that. And equally, the, I guess the younger folks are learning about um, how to approach work from a, you know, more uh, with more perspective, etc. So I've seen that working. Now, there are a couple of rules to follow to make these sort of reverse mentoring programs work. So typically, you don't want to match people from the same team because there might be conflicts of interest. If you have a manager with someone they manage, of course, that's going to be a bit tricky. You might set some ground rules. For example, where are we going to meet? Is it going to be 100% virtual over Zoom? Or are we going to have some face-to-face -face over coffee? Is it going to be on a Friday or lunchtime? How often do we meet? And then what do we talk about? Because sometimes they even talk about outside of work things. So, you know, you set some ground rules, make sure people are from, the, from different teams, but also make sure there's a bit of chemistry. You don't want to match people who have zero chemistry to get together. So you might get a sense of like, do they, would they get along or do they already get along? So yes, that those typically in my experience have worked quite well, those mentor mentorship or reverse mentorship programs. Mm -hmm. And is it the, when you communicate that program, is that, is it best to just be fully transparent, even say like, hey, we're doing this so that you're outside your comfort zone, maybe or you learn something completely different than you normally would? Um, I know that people oftentimes they do these programs and it's like they don't want to say the real reason. They just hope that it turns into that. So yeah. I'm curious on how you communicate the program. So the organizations I've worked with that have done that, typically it was it was um, quite quite a formal program. It was part of a formal HR initiative. So it was um, you know, hi everyone. As part of our diversity and inclusion programs, we're rolling out this new reverse mentorship program. The goal is to 
uh, foster more, uh, you know, in inclusion and, and belonging within the team, etc. So it was very, well, I'd say quite formal. It was communicated why it was it was being done. And uh, they were even, I guess, they were measuring some progress, etc. So it was, it was quite formal. It was very well communicated, I think, even by the CEO of the organization who would send an email to the entire team saying, we're starting this program, very excited to do this. So yeah, it was very transparent, but and the feedback was really good from both sides. The feedback was that uh, people wanted to continue to do that after. Just one more comment on that, Jess. I know you have questions, but um, can you do people require employees to do those programs? Because what I've seen is, and, and at our company we do a lot of stuff around this. Um, so. There's a lot, they'll, they'll, they roll out all of these resources, all of these groups. Um, and the pe only people that, sh that, I feel like the people that don't show up are the people that should be there oftentimes. Yeah. yeah. And, but they don't want to force it on people. But at yeah. what point do you like force it and say, hey, we got to put you in the seat and you'll get something out of it? Like, trust yeah. us. It's 100%, it's a fine balance, right? So um, usually, so research demonstrates that if you force, if you make a training mandatory, it, it will probably backfire. If you force a training onto people, people are not going to really sort of bind to it or commit. So ideally, it's ideally that should be part of a voluntary program. So, you know, you, you offer that as an option. Uh, I think a great way is to position it as a great learning and development uh, opportunity for people, uh, which I think people always like to have learning and development opportunities. So really positioning it as a, it's, it's free learning for you, you know, learning and development. Now, without making it mandatory, you might sort of gently encourage your team to do that. So, so I think it's important to position why we're doing that, why it's beneficial for you, what are you going to get out of it? So that's very important. It's now you're always going to have a small portion of people who are not really interested in it for various reasons. But obviously, you're right. There are the people who would most benefit from these programs. So a uh, couple of ways you can try to encourage those sort of people who are a bit more um, sort of not interested is having some great role models. So in the organization who demonstrate that they are. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've had the great fortune of working for organizations where I had amazing role models and there were, you know, your sort of traditional, sort of, you know, straight white males in their mid 40s, but they were like fully embracing the whole ally, you know, thing they were like you know okay attending all the trainings sort of modeling all the right things really embracing it and having those sorts of uh great role models in your organization that there are typically people with a lot of influence and followers so to say uh that would that typically helps so have yeah you know as a hr professional you might sort of work with some key i'll call them influencers within your business you know they might not be your sort of social media influencer but people with a lot of influence in the organization, people that people really like and follow and ask them if they want a model because if those influencers in the business model those kind of mentorship programs, then others are typically going to follow. So there are ways to encourage gently everybody to, to attend those uh, reverse mentorship programs. But yeah, I think it's a fine balance. We don't really want it to be forceful or forcing anyone to attend those kind of programs. Yeah, so I I want us to move on. I've got a couple of more questions, but I just want to build upon um, a couple of the things that you said there because I think that they're really important. And I just wanted to add one thing too. So I love the idea of reverse mentoring, and I've certainly heard it done by uh, younger individuals mentoring older individuals. I've also seen it be really effective for females mentoring males and to help males understand what it's like to be a female trying to work your way up, you know, in an organization or frankly, a female that already is maybe an executive within an organization is, but, but is always kind of competing for the attention in a predominantly white male boardroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I've seen, I've seen it done both ways. And I think that they can be very effective if you have um, individuals who are really open-minded and open to having some self-awareness and really listen, being an active listener in those conversations. I also think that it's kind of a roundabout way, if you will, of doing like unconscious bias training, because when you hook two people up together that come from different types of experiences and backgrounds, you're really kind of understanding maybe in that conversation, what kind of 
unconscious biases you've had up until that point, and then becoming more aware of those in future conversations with, in this example, older individuals or a female, you know, working with a male or vice versa. Yeah. So I think what you said here, Jess, is, a, is about diversifying your network. And I completely agree that it's, it's a very important point, both for the mentor and the mentee. One of my best mentors that I've had, uh, his name was Steve, and he was uh, quite a, at a senior level. He was a VP in my organization. And the fact that I had him as a mentor really opened a lot of doors for me, uh, opened up a lot of career opportunities and a lot of uh, stretch assignments. And that's one of the best sort of experience I've had. So I love your idea about diversifying your network, being intentional about spending time with people who are different from you, different gender, different uh, ethnic background, different age. I think it opened doors for both, uh, both people. Yeah. And I like what you said there um, because you said two things. You said mentorship is really important and diversifying your your network is important, but also with your uh, mentorship that you had with Steve, what you described there was a sponsor. Steve mm-hmm. was a sponsor to you. He mentioned your name and meetings as opportunity surfaced. Um, he came to you maybe when there was an opportunity he felt like you would maybe want to put your name in the hat for. And that's something that we're doing at CH Robinson right now. So something to kind of put a, a bug in the ear of our listeners is to maybe talk about if you have the means to do so in your organization, a sponsorship program that is mm-hmm. separate from a mentor program, because I really do see those things as kind of being two separate entities. A sponsor is somebody who always has you at top of mind. And when they are sitting in those boardroom conversations, they are mentioning your name quite frequently and helping to support you, you know, through your career within the organization. Absolutely. And both actually could work quite nicely hand in hand. You're right. A mentor is not necessarily a sponsor. Uh, in my case, my mentor was also my sponsor, which was amazing. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, if you can, uh, I would uh, strongly encourage you to have some sort of sponsorship program or mentorship program in your organization. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to follow up on was just the training and the question that Mike had asked about making it mandatory versus not making it mandatory. And And I would agree in my experience that Anytime something has been mandated, it feels like a check the box activity and people kind of just go through it without really understanding or feeling the value of the training. And I really liked how you had mentioned in my understanding of what you said is really leading by example. So having key leaders in the organization that really should be setting the example for how important taking these types of trainings or, or talking about these topics is so um, important to the organization and doing them, you know, taking them, reading whatever the activity is, you know, do the activity and then talk to their leaders about like, hey, I just finished this segment of, you know, this unbiased training. And here's what I learned from it. Have any of you taken it yet? And if so, I would love to hear what you learned from it and really opening up and engaging in the conversation, which would then hopefully influence the individuals who maybe haven't prioritized it to prioritize it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think if 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 our listeners today are going to live with one takeaway about training, I think it's um, as long, I think about training is not really about the training itself or making it mandatory. It's about what are we trying to achieve as an organization? Going back to what are we trying to achieve? Why are we doing this? And it's especially powerful when it comes from the CEO themselves. So it's especially powerful when the CEO takes the time to even talk, maybe in a town hall meeting, say, hi, everyone, super excited about this new initiative how we're going to embrace diversity and inclusion. The reason why it's important for us is because X, Y, Z, because that's going to have so much more uh, impact than, uh, <laughs> I guess, a notification coming through your inbox saying, you know, mandatory training. Absolutely. So the importance of having your CEO themselves uh, communicating why we're doing that, the importance of setting context, what's the reason for this and the goal, reminding the goal, the importance of constant communication, having strong role model is way more important than just that sort of mandatory ticker box training. Yep. Well, great. So we've, we've really defined what DE&I is. 
is, you know, you also kind of weaved in the benefits of DEI. We talked about how to prioritize your time and we talked about measuring and ROI. Um, now from here, let's kind of wrap things up with once an organization has a foundation, they've they've really put their value proposition in place for why DEI is important to the the ex- executive leadership of the organization. How how does one keep their momentum and not have it just be like, this is a season of DEI, you know, the, the month or the calendar year is over. And, you know, now employees are feeling like there's not much of an emphasis put on it after the initial rollout. Yeah, I think that's such a good point to wrap up what, what we said. So in my experience, there are a couple of uh, strategies that can be used to to foster diversity and inclusion beyond just, you know, your kickoff exercise. So one is setting up a a committee or a task force that's, you know, whose mission is going to be to monitor progress regarding your diversity inclusion goals. That's, you know, having that committee that comes together once a week, maybe a monitoring goal is very important. Number two, goals, goal setting exercise. We talked about it, maybe setting goals for the, you know, medium term and long term. Uh, ideally, I always say uh, trying to tie those goals to monetary uh, outcomes. So, for example, Starbucks, McDonald's, Nike are tying their executives' bonuses to diversity goals, which I think is fantastic. So, uh, I strongly recommend doing that. And then I have to talk about having an accountability partner because working with a third party, an external uh, expert or consultant is really helpful. I always use the metaphor of a personal trainer to say you're trying to lose weight and, and get fit and in shape. Could you do it yourself? Yes, you could. Could you try and eat healthier and go to the gym? Yes, you can. But when you have a personal trainer, someone who's going to keep you accountable every week saying, have you done your exercise? Have you eaten as I told you? is really going to boost you know, the results. And when you hire a personal trainer, typically you get better results than if you do it on your own. So it's the same with diversity inclusion, when you have an external a third party sort of person who's going to keep you accountable more than anything else. Yes, they have the knowledge that yes, they have benchmark. Yes, they have expertise for sure. But it's more than that. It's having that accountability. Yeah, Are you doing this? Are you doing that? They're kind of pushing you. In my experience, really helps uh, to drive diversity, diversity and inclusion in the longer term rather than just having a short term. So those are the three strategies I would I would recommend have, setting up a task force in the committee setting goals and working with a, a third party diversity and inclusion expert to keep you accountable so I think that's a great idea um, I want to talk about that task force because I do feel like there sometimes is the expectation that human resources owns deni efforts and my argument would be two two things. One is that your executive leadership has to own it first and foremost, which you've already mentioned several times today. It has to start with a CEO and then it has to waterfall down. And then from there, it's really everybody's responsibility to live and breathe the value proposition as it relates to DEI. So when you think about this task panel or you know, these individuals that are going to be kind of our fitness coaches and holding us accountable, should those, in your opinion, should those individuals be mainly business leaders, or do you feel like they should be a combination of um, HR professionals and business leaders? Yeah, it's a good point because you're right. Oftentimes we'll say, okay, HR, you deal with <laughs> with it. But the reality is that whilst, yes, it's, it's great and it makes sense to have someone from HR because ultimately we're going to touch about workforce, etc. Um, we also need to have uh, business leaders who are who have the authority and the influence and the power to drive things forward. So the task force, you know, the committee, the diversity inclusion committee should, by all means, have someone from HR. By all means, very important to have someone um, sort of let's call them an executive sponsor. And also people from IDD, I always say every department. Nowadays, you'd be surprised. I work with people from actually who are from IT. Recently, <laughs> the main contact at an organization I was, I was delivering a workshop was the IT from the IT team, and they were the person driving their diversity and inclusion efforts. Recently, I've been also dealing with the marketing uh, manager. The marketing manager was, was driving the diversity and inclusion initiative. So having someone from as many departments as possible also gives you that 365 view of what is every department uh, after when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So 
I'd say, yes, someone from HR, someone from your leadership team, and, and as much as possible, people from different departments to so have really a diverse group. Great suggestion. All right. Well, it's been lovely having you today. And this is a topic I could talk about for hours, but I do feel like we covered some really good ground and hopefully gave our listeners some kind of key things that either A, they learned or that um, maybe was a reminder to them too, because I do feel like just friendly reminders or reinforcing things that we already know, but maybe we haven't prioritized as also really helpful and for them to bring that back to either their HR leadership team or, or to their executive team in the business. So with that, um, we didn't really have ch a chance to talk much about your book. So I would love for you to share about your book, where people can find it, who the book is for. And then I know you have a ton of resources with your TED Talks, your YouTube channel and others. So please share all the places that our listeners can find you and follow you. Yeah, of course. So my book is called um, Inclusion, uh, The Ultimate Secret for an Organization's Success. It's available on Amazon. So if you just uh, go on Amazon in the book section, and if you actually, if you just search inclusion, it will come up. Um, so you can order it on Amazon. And it's really, it's for HR professionals, team leaders, but also really any professional who wants to know how to build an inclusive team, how to uh, how to build more inclusion in my organization. Uh, I, there is a, a chapter around uh, doing that in remote work, uh, how to focus more on diversity. So it's a very practical, practical book, lots of practical tips, very easy to read because the chapters are divided in a way that it's easy to read and lots of stories and, and you know, from my clients. So yeah, it's hopefully a very helpful, practical guide to, to get started on your diversity inclusion journey. Uh, if people want more, more after more free resources, I have quite a few re free resources and eBooks on my website. Uh, my website is my first name, last name.com. So it's perinfark.com. And a lot of ebooks and guides and, and lots and lots of articles there for free. So have a look. Uh, and if you want to, yes, follow me. Yes, I do have a YouTube channel with, with sort of short tutorial videos on how to. Uh, and I'm also, of course, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So feel free to connect with me. I, I always like to connect with my community there. So yeah, feel free to connect with me there. Thank you so much for everything. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.